Hey everyone, welcome to the show. This week's episode is brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. Brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. Man Tracker is on the show, everybody. Terry Grant, the human form that tracks the man on with the horse and the running and the person. He's here. And I'm so excited, as you can tell, because I've been telling you all about Terry and how he was coming on. But also, as I've spent like the last three minutes with him starting to record, he is like the chillest man as well. And I'm slightly terrified for him right now. I'll do all right. Yeah, I'm sure you will. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, wow. Um, I have a million and one questions for you, but mainly, how's the weather in Alberta right now? Perfect. Is it it's warm? Le- yeah, it's nice. We're almost ready to get some green grass here. It's Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's amazing how quickly it changes from the freezing cold in Alberta to all of a sudden, well, summer's here. Yep. Yeah. Chinooks are a, a great asset, but there's a lot of people get headaches and crap from them, but I don't. So I enjoy the Chinooks. That makes my heart happy. You live in, is it, are you in rural Alberta? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I was, I was trying to explain to people because we do workup training in Wainwright, Alberta oh, yeah. and trying to always explain to people um, how cold it gets in the winter. <laughs> yes. And how miserable it can be because that's when they opted to send us to do workup training for Afghanistan. Yep. Yep. And which has nothing similar to Afghanistan. I'm so glad you caught on to the sarcasm in that, Terry, because most people can't <laughs> read me at all. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. I drive by, I drive by uh, through Wainwright as fast as possible, but uh, been there yeah. several times. Well, I'm, I mean, the only thing we ever got was like, don't blow up the people's cows. They don't appreciate that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and when, so, when it comes to the cold, you, you just can't describe 40 below. Mm-mm. You can't, there, there's no words for it. I've talked to people from Australia that have been here and they experienced 30 or 40 below. And it's like, okay, how would you describe it? Yeah. And they, they just use two words. Yeah, it's really cold. <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying. It, when you walk outside, it, you lose your breath. All the air just kind of like solidifies in your lungs. Yep. Yeah. 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 Well, I digress. I just, I always try to explain, and I love that you live there because you, it's great to hear it from somebody else besides me just going, it's cold here in Canada. It's miserably <laughs> cold. Um, I have a lot of questions. Number one. Sure. How do you go from being you? Cause you grew up as a cowboy, correct? 
Okay. So you, that was in the family. That, that was like a whole lineage deal, right? Um, not really. I, okay. I drove out. I grew up in Southern Ontario and my cousins had horses and yeah, we just, we'd ride horses and pretend to be cowboys. And we got a, somebody bought us a rope and we started roping everything that would move. And <laughs> when I, when I turned 17, I thought I'm going to drive out to Alberta and see what it looks like and have a look at the mountains. And I drove out and still here. So still there. the first job I got was on uh, the Bar U Ranch, which is, you know, one of the famous four, big four. And uh, I started working there and liked it and liked the cowboy life. And it's what I wanted to do. So I kept doing it. Where in Southern Alberta? Where? Yeah. I'm, about, I'm about an hour south of Calgary. Okay. Okay. And where, where Ontario did you... Where were you born and raised? A little place called Creemore, which is about Creemore. 50 miles straight north of the Toronto airport. Okay. So, so you're not too far because I'm from Campbellford. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we're not crazy far apart, but I always ask because that's another thing. It's like one of our biggest provinces. And it's when people talk about Texas, I make a comparison to Ontario because it's just wide landmass. Yeah. Um, yeah and so the shape of Ontario, it takes you two days to get through it. Yeah, it's an absolute nightmare. I, I was talking to an American when I was just in Texas, and uh, he said, um, he goes to me, I'm from Michigan. And I said, well, part of Michigan. He's like, the part that's actually above Canada, but somehow is still America. And so Ontario is this weird, odd object to me. And it was never, my parents are truck drivers, and they hate going, like, it's the longest, boring route besides Saskatchewan. It's pretty miserable. Um, but I always try to break it down for people because a lot of our listeners are American at our landmass, um, yeah. Southern Alberta. Okay. So you stayed into that lifestyle. How does one go from living in Southern Alberta where that is just not a, you know, Hollywood and film and those types of documentaries. I mean, now they're all over Canada. We have them up North. We have them with the ice road truckers. We have them with um, the fisheries on the East coast. How do you even get into this? What path? How do you get into what? Cowboying? Not just cowboying, but cowboying and filming and making TV and making the series man tracker. Um, very lucky. Mostly. Um, the, uh, the producer had the idea for a show and had a rough idea on what he wanted. And he went to the Toronto Sportsman Show looking for a man tracker. And he ran into my cousin, who's an outfitter, and he knew him from doing a little bit of filming with um, Tourism Alberta and stuff. And he asked him if he'd be interested. And he said, nope, I'm too busy and I don't know how to track people, but call my cousin. He's a cowboy and he's with search and rescue. And yeah. So he called me up three or four days later, came out and did an interview and said, yeah, called me a week later and said, you're it. So cousin knew a guy. Yeah. Yeah. God, that's so Canadian. It hurts. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know a guy. I got a guy. This is over here. He's my cousin. He's fine. It'll work. Yeah, exactly. So you did cowboying though, but how does cowboying, I guess cowboying, would that be leading into the tracking lifestyle because of livestock? Yes. Yeah. There's, you know, when we're cowboying and we're, you know, six miles from home back in the bush looking for cows to get out of that pasture or whatever, um, 
if you're riding up a trail and you know it's going somewhere and you don't see any fresh cow tracks then you might as well turn around and go somewhere else because there's no cows there so and that you know that all started and then I get into search and rescue and I knew a lot about um tracking with you know cows and horses and deer and elk and moose and all that stuff because you want to kind of pay attention to what's ahead of you and your horse and if you see a great big bear track going the same way you are and after a while you'd see enough of them you could tell how old they were and whether you really need to be careful or you know whatever and then I got into search and rescue and I actually learned how to track people and that brought in the whole there's a huge psychological part to tracking people that is just amazing. You know, I know one tenth of what I should know, but I know probably more than most people. And yeah, it, it all kind of fit together and that's the skills I needed. And I was kind of, I was very surprised actually, the first show we did was up in the Yukon. And I really expected this to be a TV show, kind of Hollywood, kind of like do this, do that, say this. And we were waiting on our horse, me and my guide. And finally they came and got us and said, okay, the prey are gone, come on over. So we went over and there's a great big community fireplace and fire pit, I guess. And they said, okay, where you go. And I went, oh, yeah, um, okay. And there's like four cameramen and the producer and three or four other people. And I said, okay, I need to know which tracks are theirs. And he says, well, why? And I said, because I don't want to track you into the bush or anything. So they did begrudgingly gave me one track from each of the prey. And then away we went. And we went about a half a mile and we came to an intersection kind of in the bush roads. And Chuck, who was my guide at the time, was he's a pretty good tracker. We couldn't find the tracks. We were done. So I looked at my cameraman and I said, OK, what do we do now? And he looked at me and says, well, I can find my way back. He said, other than that, I'm just here to film you. So, yeah, I, oh, wow. I don't know. So, and I said, so you're not going to tell me what to do or what to say or how to do it or nothing? And he says, nope, I'm here to film you. And I went, okay. And that's when I realized it's like, I've really got to do this. So I backed up like 50 yards and started to look around. And then I saw the trail in the grass where they cut the corner and as I'm following them down this sandy trail, thankfully, it, all of the tracking experience came back and I had to rely on a ton of it. And yeah, away we went. And two days later, we come out of the bush with a winner and a loser and we got, yeah, went higher from there. It's so wild to me because there's, there's so much there I want to go into. So just bear with me here. Number one. Sure. Going into Hollywood, things like that, I would expect the same. So I think you were right too. But it's wild that they actually just let you do what you do. Um, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not sure how. Because no, did anybody ever beat you? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I must have missed those because in my mind, I was pretty sure there was the majority of the time you were on point. Oh, like, like following the track. Yeah. You, yeah. Oh. You almost oh. always consistently got them. Um, no, 70%. Really? Yeah. The average okay. over, over the six years was I caught 70% of them. I guess maybe just watching them in a row. It just feels like you never lost. And my husband was making a joke with me today about you. And I was just, like, oh, it was so, it was so bad. He was like, you should do a green screen and just show up 
and just be like, <laughs> ha, I'm here, Terry. You didn't even need to find me. I was like, it was such a bad dad joke. It was fantastic. <laughs> um, but anyway, so no, I, I'm so curious because a lot of the stuff that you've learned, yes, that came from skill and being, um, being a cowboy, but when you're starting to look for people, you were in search and rescue. Yeah. That's a different thing. You're, you're searching for different reasons than, than a film. Yeah. yeah. You've yeah, been involved in a lot. Yep. Yeah. Thankfully. Yes. Um, yeah. In search and rescue, you're looking for a lost soul who doesn't, they're not necessarily trying to hide their tracks and they do certain things, you know, everybody walks in a circle when they're in the bush and, and that's why a lot of people don't get found is because the searchers go through an area. And if the person keeps moving, that person makes a big circle and comes back in behind the searchers and quite often expires. And then it really makes the searchers feel bad because they search that area. And then the person turns up expired behind them. And it's not their fault. It's because the person just kept going and made a big circle and came in behind them. So we adopted the, um, I guess, the protocol of when an area is searched, it will, all, will always be researched two days later by a different group. So you don't always go the same place as the last guy. And yeah, so there's certain things that changed because of search and rescue and the way searchers are done. But, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. The, uh, the difference is that the people I was tracking didn't want to be found, but they still did all of the same stuff that, that we uh, have in a book that says, if a person is doing this, they're going to do this. So there, there's certain things that we all do in the bush without even thinking about it. We do it walking upstairs, walking across the room, everything. We have certain patterns we all do. And if you can pick up on those patterns, it's easier to follow that person the next day or the day after. It's pretty cool. So you're dealing with a lot of behavioral psychology. Yes. Huge, huge amount. Yep. Do you, is that something you studied in school? No. Or learned, <laughs> Gosh, be, learned no. behavior? No. Um, no, there was nothing in school I learned that had anything to do with Cowboys tracking horses, nothing. Did um, is that something they they when you're in search and rescue? Is that something you you learn or you you learn by doing? How does that work? Um, in search and rescue, it's like anything. They give you the tools and they explain how to do it and show you maybe one example, and then you take it from there. And it's up to you to improve on those skills and and do it more. You know, they'll, they'll show you what a deer track looks like. Then it's up to you to go and find deer tracks and follow them and, and see what kind of habits deer have. And, and then people are the same way. It's interesting that you talk about um, how people behave the same in the bush. Because these people, like you said, when you were filming, they, they didn't want to be found. But right. throughout, that, throughout that show, did it just solidify more and more that people have the similar behaviors? I mean, did they all act the same or did these, some people have any sort of knowledge prior? Um, yeah, we had, we had several army guys and the army guys quite often kicked my butt because they could navigate. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing they would do is when we walk, um, when people walk down the road, 
they walk down the road and they go, they know it takes them two hours, two and a half hours to go a mile. When they get in the bush and they start walking, they're, they're still looking at their watch going, okay, we've walked for an hour, that's two and a half miles, we're right here on the map. Well, in the bush, you don't walk two mile, two and a half miles an hour. It's, you know, in really nice open hardwood bush, you might get two miles an hour. But I did a training with the, the, uh, um, the desert rats over in Manitoba riding mountains. And the guys that were tracking all these people, they turned a bucket full of them loose. They said, yeah, well, we walk, you know, we can do two miles an hour. And we went, you know, up here, but there's nobody there. We're way behind them. And, and he says, I don't know how they did that. Cause I can only walk like one mile an hour when I go through the bush. And I looked at him and I said, so how can they walk two miles an hour? And he looked at me and went, they can't. So they came back like three miles and then they started to find people. Wow. So when, when people off the street walk in the bush and they walk for an hour, they think it's two or two and a half miles, but it's really only a mile or maybe a mile and a quarter. And that's where the, the army guys and the, the trained people in the services, they, they would know. And they would know that when they had walked a mile, they're, they're right here or been in the bush an hour, they're right here. Um, in search and rescue, we used to have a, just a little string hanging off our belt and it had 10 beads on it. And yeah, you, you do a pacing, which, so every time your right foot hits the ground, you, you count to, with me, I think it's 55, and that's 100 meters. And then you slide one bead down. When you've gone 10 beads, you know you've gone a mile or a kilometer. And the, the guys in the services that knew their, uh, their compass work and re could read a map and stuff, they knew where they were. Everybody else said, oh, we've been walking for two hours. We missed this road. We're way up here now. And it's like, no. And they thought they were up here. So it's like, okay, this road turns right and goes right to where we want. And yeah, the road ends and then they're lost. So it was pretty cool. That. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. Whatever you think you do on the highway, you probably do half of that in the bush. It's so crazy to me that people have even attempted to, to like at that pace, because when, when you're going through where, and where, where were you filming? That was the hardest because that pace and distance that you're talking about, I guess that would vary, like you said, because of yeah. the type of bush you're getting. What did you find the hardest place? Some of the, tell me about some of the hardest places, like the ones where you didn't win. I'm curious about these stories. Um, oh gosh. Well, I think Northern Ontario was probably consistently the toughest type of terrain. Um, because just because it's Northern Ontario, it's, you know, bogs and creeks and swamps and, you know, dense bush and all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if there was, I don't think there was ever one specific area that was harder or better for me. They did, luckily for me, there was always, it seemed one day was really easy for the prey and then one day was really easier for me but there was never a day where it was very very out outclassed where you know it's easy for them for two days or it was mm -hmm. easy for me for two days 
the uh, the better trained and the better fitness that the prey had, the better they did. I mean, that makes complete sense. I mean, yeah, size yeah. and ability is going to matter. Yeah. yeah. But I, I used to love getting um, marathon runners. When I heard that I got a marathon runner for the next show, it's like, thankfully, yes. Because marathon runners lift their feet about that far. Oh. They can go for three days, but they lift their feet one inch off the ground. You put them in a bush where they're starting to lift their leg every step, they're dead after 12 hours because they've never lifted their legs. And people, people that spend time in the bush as guides or outfitters or even in the services, they're used to packing heavy packs and lifting their legs because you're going up terrain, down terrain. So yeah, marathon runners, yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for them because I can't run that far either, but put them in the bush and it's a whole new ball game. And I'm, I normally caught most of them. Well, that's so fascinating. Human behavior is such, oh my gosh, I'm so, yep. I'm sorry. I'm so, I'm so, when you're talking about this, I'm so interested because that is so, it's so true. Behavior like that would totally be horrific in the woods, but not only that is you're going nowhere. You're just going to lose like that. I, <laughs> it's just so sad to suck that bad. Yep. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes how, it wasn't good, but how quick, what was your fastest? What was your fastest one? I tried the last season to catch somebody on day one, but there's that thing called adrenaline. Mm. Uh, it, yeah, it didn't happen. The best mm. I ever best I ever did was uh, Jordan and Susie on about one o'clock on day two. Oh. That was, that's the earliest. And they, the they, they pretty much gave up. So. Oh, just couldn't hack it. Yeah. They were out of shape and they were tired and yeah. They wanted to be found. Well, no, they didn't want to be found, but I tried even to split them up so I could get a few more shots or minutes out of the show and that didn't work either <laughs> they oh, they were completely gosh. done and the, the girl I actually ran between the girl and the guy and she waited for me to go by and he fell down and she went over and went oh and she fell down beside him oh okay yeah well they they carried on a long distance relationship and they uh they hadn't seen each other for like six months and then they got together the night before the chase. So yeah, they were a little tired the next day to start out. and It didn't help them at all. Oh, that's so great. That shows just, it's, it's so interesting when you're talking about these people, because you would expect, you would expect that human behavior obviously would dictate this, but did you ever have off days where you just couldn't get it together? Um, I had days where the country just didn't help me at all. <laughs> like, Normally there's, you know, there's dirt or sand or, you know, the, the way the, the land is formed, it kind of channeled people here and there. And there were times where, um, yeah, I'd ride around for three or four hours and not have a clue where these guys were. So I would nine times out of 10, I just say, okay, let's go find a shady spot and have some lunch. And we'd sit there and eat a sandwich and We'd be looking around and it's like, there they are. And they nine times out of 10, they'd walk straight to me. They didn't see us. They didn't know we were there, but, and I had no clue where they were. 
and I would just sit there on my horse with my guide and we'd talk real quiet and it's like, here they come. And they'd walk down the trail. We just walked down or we'd see them, you know, a hundred yards away, walking down a trail and we'd finish lunch and then go chase them. And we'd plan our next ambush and stuff. So my ambushes got better near the end, I will say. Has that helped you now? Um, no. <laughs> no, the the ambushes were were kind of a it was a it was a pretty cool deal because you after I did it for a few years, you really start to pay attention to where people are trained to look. When you're driving down a road and the road curves, you look around the curve. You don't look inside the curve. You might look outside to see, you know, trees or something, but you never look inside the curve. And I used that to my advantage. And I, I had to pay attention to what I did and how I saw things. And lots of times guys, they'd, they'd walk within 15 feet of me and they'd be looking around the corner and looking on the outside of the corner, but they never looked on the inside. And that's where I'd hide. And uh, I'll never forget Shane Doan, a professional hockey player, him and his brother. And they know they knew horses. They grew up kind of helping people ride and taking out little rides for kids and stuff like that. So they knew horses and they knew people and stuff. He got within 10 steps of me and I yelled and jumped out and he talked to me afterwards and he says, I have no clue how you got that close. And I said, I didn't get close to you at all. You got close to me. And he says, you know, and he talked to me about how did I know where to stay? And I said, well, because when I walked up that hill, I knew what I was looking at. So I went, where wasn't I looking? So I went and hid there. Same thing worked for him. So yeah, it, it's pretty cool. There's, there's so much, so much to learn about yourself and, and how you do things. And then you relate that to how other people do it. And it's, it's amazing. It's pretty cool. You, um, I'm going to ask you something really personal and you can totally not answer this if you want, but we kind of talk about this stuff on this show. Um, cause I always find people who do what you do or types of work like you genuinely, or most of the time, the ones at least I've met never really struggle with their mental health. I, I don't think I do. I, I think I'm fairly normal and fairly grounded, you know, um, when shit happens, you just deal with it. Um, I don't know. Some people might think I'm a little wackadoodle, but <laughs> I think I'm okay. I don't, I don't see any serious problems. Well, no, the reason I say that is because there's all, you know, there's a direct correlation to being outside and to being in nature yeah. and those types of things. And you've had a whole life of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've spent, you know, oh God, cowboy and you spend 10 12 hours a day by yourself talking to your horse and you know some you never sing to your horse because that's when he bucks you off but <laughs> <laughs> um it's it's one of those things when you like with cowboys i know it's all the same lots of times you get to ride with other guys but i'm gonna say 85 90 percent of the time you're doing shit by yourself you got to deal with it and figure it out and if that old cow is trying to kill you but you need to doctor the calf. You got to figure out how to get it done by yourself. And it, 
those kind of life lessons, I guess, passed over into my personal life, I guess. If I was having a problem like everybody else does, there's too much, not enough money at the end of the month. You, you know, when you're riding around on your horse, it's like, all right, what am I going to do for the next week and a half with no money? And you ride around, you think about it for eight, 10, 12 hours on your horse and you come back, that problem solved. You move on to the next one, figure it out, get it done and away you go. So I, I think my mental state is probably okay. I mean, it's honestly, it seems like you've, you've gone through a, you know, a, I'll say a heart isn't the right word. You've, you've had a, you know, a tougher life than most. Um, and, and in a good way, I mean, in a way that like, I wish everyone could grow up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have, you know, I grew up, I don't know, our family was very poor and, uh, I grew up you know, with family and friends and stuff and not knowing I was poor. And then, you know, now I look back at it and those are the kind of things that, that made me who I am today and the problems I had and stuff like that. Do you think, um, you, you kind of see what's going on in the world. So, and the way society is developing. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Or lack of, do you, do you think, do you think if we had more more of the way you grew up with that type of lifestyle would be in the same position we are now? I think, I think if some of the kids had more of what I grew up with, we'd have, it would be better. Yeah. I got to grab a cord for my phone. Do your thing, Terry. Great. Sounds good. So we were talking about children of the world and how we need more of your upbringing so that they stop being so soft. Yeah, I, I think like today's kids, they they don't they don't grow up with the same values that, that my generation grew up with. They don't they don't know what it's what it's all about to um, sit down to a meal at the table and only have one bowl of food. And I know I, I notice it with some of my my younger family members. It's like, oh, I don't like that. I want this. And their mother will get up and make them something different. And it's it's like, man, when we grew up, there was one bowl. It went around the table, and if you didn't like it, you didn't eat. And if you didn't eat, you went hungry because there was nothing else. And I think the, the kids have a lot of choices today. And I'm, I don't know, they, they have different ethics and different, the ones I've seen have a very poor work ethic. I, I've worked with some kids. I, I work for a farmer in the spring and fall with seeding and harvest. And, and he hires the odd, you know, younger person you know, 16 to 18 or something. And they'll work away beside you. And then they're like, oh, I'm bored. I don't want to do this anymore. I'll see you. And then they'll just bugger off and go do something else. And it's like, you know, dude, that's not the way things work. It's like, get over here, grab that shovel and get to work. No, I don't want to do that. See ya. And away they go. So it's like, yeah, they got a different work ethic. So I don't know. No way we can change it, I don't think. But there's always a way. Shush, don't, don't, don't leave that like negativity on me here, Terry. We have to change it or we're going to have problems. Well, yeah, we've got the problems already. I don't know how you change it though, without changing the parents. And I think the whole, the whole world, you know, the parents have to work. Normally both parents have to work to pay for all the bills and stuff because of the way the economy is. And, you know, the kids, 
deal with it. The parents deal with the kids the best they can and the best they know how. And there, there's not that parent at home, you know, cooking the meals and doing stuff and making the kid do stuff that there used to be when I grew up. So it's just a different way. And I don't know, the kids don't need to work as hard because 90% of it is now this, you know, it's more computerized and stuff like that. So I don't know. It's, I have like my little guy's young and he, you know, there's definitely, you see these kids in his class and um, they're super incompetent, Terry. Yeah. Some of them. Yeah. Because Jack grew up in uh, forest preschool. He's in forest school for March break right now. And um, they learn how to forage and build fires and hammer nails. Yep. Yep. <laughs> they have chickens. Um, that hang out with them. Yeah. It's the best, but that kid is the most confident five-year-old I've ever met. Yeah. And uh, we don't beat him. I mean, you you don't have to, he does chores, but I mean, I'm not buying that Lego. You better be buying that Lego homie. That's expensive. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I, I think there's, I feel like we, like you said, it, it comes from the parent. I just, I wish there was more of that. I mean, I, I listen to individuals like you and another one of my friends, Austin, who's a cowboy. And I believe he's in Montana, Wyoming area. And, um, a friend of mine's a bison farmer and they go up and they do, they, you know, they do all the corralling of the horses out in the wild. And it always blows my mind. Um, because I mean, I remember when I was in the military and I had to do the tracking stuff. I'm telling you, there's a reason I was an artillery gunner at stay put. <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit it, Terry. <laughs> Other people say that's a women's issue as well, but you know, that's depending on who well, you're serving with at the time. I learned probably about season three that I had to track women totally different than men. And hey, you I need had, to explain all of this. I had to treat them totally different because women think different, as we all know. As smart men know, the women think different. Anyway. <laughs> as good husbands know, Terry. <laughs> yes. And the, the biggest thing I found was us men, we, you know, we've grown up. It's like, oh, I'm a tough guy. I can do that. And the, there's this wall of bush and the guy just fights his way through it. And he comes out bleeding and, you know, missing a couple of fingers. But it's like, yeah, I did that. I can do that. The women, they look at it and go, oh, let's use the trail over here. And they, they <laughs> jump on the trail and bloop, away they go. And it was after, you know, after seeing this so many times that I, I started to realize that I need to treat them different because they think different. And it made a huge difference in the way in my success rate with the women. Really? It was, yeah, it was amazing. I really didn't think that under the exact same circumstances, the basically same terrain, same, you know, scenario that there would be a difference, but there was. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. I wish I was as good as those women. Uh, nah. some, some of them were pretty good. Some of them weren't. <laughs> some of it's common sense too, right? I feel like if you, if you never were taught critical thinking or common sense or the ability to have common sense. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Common sense plays into a lot of stuff even today. Oh, you mean all of the things today, Terry? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. 
You Terry, you're walking me down a road here. You don't want to go down. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, you don't need to be targeted by the government, okay? Well, yeah, He's... when you yeah, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot in it and hang on. <laughs> I can't wait to grow up and be you one day, Terry. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I wish that was, uh, definitely more of a, a lifestyle that was taught though. Honestly, I, I grew up in rural Ontario and, um, you know, I grew up on 17 acres. I didn't have as much acreage as you did, but, um, it was all woods and we did the, yeah. the cut, the splitting of the wood. That's how we heated the house. And it was, a, sure. you know, the whole thing. I remember my, uh, <laughs> I feel like your parents wouldn't have been far off of this. That's why you're going to love this. I remember we were cutting splitting wood one day and uh, my dad, like we used to sell it, right? Cords of wood at a time. And yep. my brother was out there. My mom was out there. My dad was out there. That was our whole family. We were all out there. And for whatever reason, mom thought it would be smart to like throw. We were, she was tossing and I was piling. She just like chucked, just ha ha, like innocently, super innocently, Terry. But I grabbed it and my finger snapped. Ow. I'm like, that's, that's. That's my childhood being in yep. the dirt in the woods, cut and splitting wood, even though it was miserable, but I hate to admit it, but those are the things I miss the most. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are the things that made us what we are today. And that, that gave us our values and our ethics and our, our morals. And that's where we grow up to realize that, you know, how to treat other people and, you know, how to, how to look at life and how to deal with shit. And a lot of people don't have that now. So I, I think, think I'm very, missing. I'm very uh, privileged to have grown up and, and not had everything handed to me. You know, if I wanted something, it's the same thing. You know, I had to go work for it. And I had to work all one summer. I wanted a 10 speed bike. I was like 12 and I had to bust my butt all summer, stooking hay and shoveling cleaning barns and cutting grass and stuff and I finally had and I, it was a ridiculous amount it was like 75 dollars for a 10-speed bike and I finally got all the money together and it was October and we drove to the bike store got my bike took it home and it snowed the next day and I never got to ride it till like next spring and I'm like Jesus you know but I'd go it was the cleanest bike you'd ever seen <laughs> and go out to the barn and clean it every three days and wait for the snow to disappear and about april or may i finally got to ride that bike so well it's just a different way i yeah it's interesting because it's interesting because i used to you know we used to go out to my uncles and and do all of those things like they had a big farm and things like that and i have an idea and i think you should take me up on it terry i think you should start you should start like um a summer camp school for like boys of a certain boys and girls of a certain age where you, you, you teach them how to cowboy all summer long and they work for you all summer. So it's like kind of child labor, but not because they're also just getting life skill. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd probably wear them out after about a week. That's fantastic. I'll send you my son. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he one, talks one more than you, I do. One of, one of you is going to have to come with him because I can't, Fine. Yeah, I can't take kids. You know, I do mentored hunts down in Crow's Nest Pass. I help out with the mentor hunts. We take out kids and we teach them how to shoot and we take them out. They're between 12 and 16 years old and oh, wow. we take them out and help them harvest their first animal. 
but I can take a young boy between 12 and 16 by myself, but I cannot take a young girl. I need to have another adult with me. And, uh, and I've just got into the point. I, I do tracking courses and stuff like that. And it's like, if there's a child under the age of 18, there better be a parent with them because I'm not going through the garbage and crap that a lot of celebrities go through when they have, you know, the kid comes home and goes, mommy touched me. And it's like, yeah, well, three weeks later, they find out you touched him on his shoulder. You know? Yeah. We don't need that for you in your life, Terry. Uh-uh. And I, yeah, I'm going to guard against that. So. Well, you're being smart. I don't think you're wrong. It is a change in the way the world works now. And then the fact that yeah. you recognize that's obviously very important, but the, the skills, I mean, I'm interested. Tell me about this. Tell me about this mentorship program. That sounds really interesting. Um, it's pretty cool. It's like I said, 12 to 16 year old. They, uh, there's a lady down in the past that organizes it. And, um, there's a teacher in one of the schools that gets the kids to fill out all the forms and stuff. And it's, everything is donated. We donate our time and, um, the gun club donates the gun club so we can take the kids there three Sundays in a row and teach them how to shoot. Cause most of them have never shot a gun. So we teach them how to shoot. And once they can hit the bullseye, you know, three out of three at a hundred yards, then, you know, they might try a different gun. They might try different shooting positions, that kind of thing. And then the, the fourth weekend, we actually take them out and the government gives us a set number of tags and we go out and help them harvest an animal. And they, uh, we, we put a, a stock on it and they get to shoot the animal and then they, they have to help gut it and process it and drag it back to the truck. And then we take it to the butcher for them. And uh, I've been doing that for well, five or six years now. And it's pretty cool. The kids are, the kids are amazing. They're really good. Are these kids that come from underprivileged or are these just like anybody nope. who wants to join? Just anybody that wants to join. Yeah. The parents have to be, the parents have to be a little bit involved because they have to, you know, get the kid, drop them off at the gun range. Um, and that's the, one of the rules is like, no, no parents when we're doing the gun teaching or shooting or anything, they can sit in their car if they want, but they have no say on it. We treat the kids as they want to be treated. And uh, yeah, we do that. And then the, uh, the parents have to come and get them after the couple hours of shooting every day and every weekend. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, last year I had a little guy named Austin. He was very small for his age. And uh, we were in a very, we we're walking across a kind of a prairie and we're looking down into a big valley and we're watching these deer over there. And he said, okay, well, let's go over here. And, and then I said, Austin, stop, look there. And he was so short, he couldn't see it. So he had to step forward and like 20 feet below us, kind of on a, I don't know, 75 degree angle. There's a big old black bear walking down there. And he looked at it and he went, holy crap, that's a bear. You know what? Yeah, it's a bear. So, you know, you can see by the bear, it's just walking along. It doesn't know we're there. It can't smell us. And yeah. And he, he turned and looked at me and says, I've never seen one except on TV. Wow. So, so yeah. And then I, I texted the other girl and her partner, her kid, and the bear walked right around that valley and walked within 25 yards of them. And everybody, there was a bunch of kids got to see that bear. And it was so cool, you know, to be able to look 
and see, you know, I remember the first time I saw a bear and then I get to really relive that by watching him, his reaction. So it was pretty cool. We get to, uh, the, the kids are pretty cool and they're, uh, they're very uh, appreciative of all we do. So it's neat. And then, so how does that, how does that work? So they get to, do they pick the animal that they want to, that they want to target? How does nope. that work? It's all, the government gives us, um, they normally give us around 10 mule deer doe tags. Okay. So we have to harvest a mule deer doe and uh, because that's where they're the most animals in that area. And that those 10, most of the doe uh, mule deer are on a draw system. You have to apply for it and some people get picked, some don't. Those 10 tags don't affect the draw system. Okay. So it doesn't, doesn't make it harder or easier for anybody to get drawn. So. I've heard that mule deer is, is really good. Um, it can be. It's, they, they eat different stuff than the whitetail. So the meat is a little, I would call it stronger, more of a, a sagey taste, heavier taste. I don't know. Okay. I don't mind it. It's, uh, it's very nice. It's just different. That's all. Yeah. Do you, do you hunt yourself? Yes. What do you go for every year? Um, I try to get an elk every year fill the freezer. It's pretty fun. I'll, uh, I'll put in for my, we can, we can like what they call a nine on nine, your draw. So you can apply for a moose tag, but you're saying, I don't want to get drawn this year. And it takes like eight or nine years to build up enough uh, points to get drawn for a moose. Oh, wow. So I'll apply for it without wanting to get drawn for eight or nine years. And then I'll apply for it. And then I normally get my moose tag so I can kind of plan when I get to go moose hunting and same with mule deer buck. You have to apply for that. And it's a, it's quite a process, but so far it's working. Yeah. That's what I'd like to get as a moose. Yeah. They're a lot of work. But they're beautiful and they oh, taste yeah. good. Yeah. Oh yeah. They taste good. And they're, yeah. they're, I don't know if they're beautiful, but I, they're pretty ugly actually, but they're beautiful. The size of those things, like they're majestic. I mean, like yeah. they're just such a yeah. large animal. Yep. Yeah. They're huge. Yeah. There's just something to them. I know my, um, I don't know if my dad's ever hit one or we came close, but like transports and, and moose up North. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not good. Well, we had, um, I, I think it was like a, I don't know if it was a farm or it was something, but where we lived, there was, I remember it very distinctly. It was Roseneath, Ontario. And uh, where we were living right across the street was this huge, it was like a uh, farmland, but then there was this uh, kind of massive hill we used to go, you know, on the sleds with, but at the very top were these two ginormous moose just standing there one day. Right. And they, they were massive. And I remember saying to my dad, well, where did they cut come from i don't understand he's like because they shouldn't be around where we were and he's like no i think there's like a farm or some type of acreage that had them up there and i just can't picture dealing with moose that way i mean they're huge I, they feel like that's a vehicle yeah yeah they're big <laughs> no they're just they're a different thing they're a completely different thing but my god they taste good i have never yep. had i've never had elk elk is i i find elk even closer to beef than moose. Really? Yeah. Oh, maybe yeah. I'll have to go for that instead. Cause it seems yeah. like getting a moose tag is impossible. Yeah. Well, elk's just about impossible too in Ontario. 
Yeah, we'll just go somewhere else, Terry. We'll go. We'll go somewhere yeah, okay. else. Come to Alberta. That's probably fine. Only, probably only cost you three hundred thousand dollars to come out here and get an outfitter and go. Yeah, get your tags and. That's astronomical. Then, you'd like it out here so much in this part of the country. You'd probably have to buy a house and live here. And I know. That's, that's where the big cost comes in. <laughs> it's too cold, Terry. Uh, it's no colder than back there. I'm in. I'm in BC now. I stay oh, here. Yeah, I'm on. Uh, I'm in White Rock. Oh, way down there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We're uh, here. We're we're talking about moving up up north a little bit, but yeah, here for now. Okay. Going mm-hmm. all the way, like north, is that like all the way to Langley or somewhere? <laughs> Hilarious. Uh, <laughs> no, um, my our offices are actually just on like the Langley, Surrey kind of border there. But no, um, I'm talking like West Kelowna. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like nice. It's nice up there. Yeah, it is. I like that country. Yeah, I like uh, you get a little more of the temperatures. You get a little more heat and you get a little more cold. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I'm fine with that. That's fine. And Make- plus wine terry <laughs> close access to really good wine terry and lots of it it's so much of it and they've you know what they also have which is really great they have great roads for practicing triathlon riding they have great rolling hills which is oh, which is so nice yeah yeah is that what you do now yeah i, I i've started doing them right before covid um i needed oh. competition in my life again yeah. And uh, I love road bikes. Uh, I think they're like the greatest thing since sliced bread. I love to run. Swimming, I can swim, but I'm not um, I'm not well-versed and comfortable with being kicked in the face during triathlons yet with swimming. So oh, that's yeah. a new that's a new experience for me. I did one up in Penticton. And um, <laughs> I, I absolutely failed miserably on the swim, Terry. Like started out front, ended dead last. But but when I got on the bike, though. That was a different, that was a different conversation. That was a, um, that was, that's when I, my time to shine, let's just say, I think it passed like in the first corner, like 26 people. I just love road biking. <laughs> yeah. I'm not yeah. very big, Terry. Well, I, yeah, I, I don't mind biking. I used to bike when I was younger, but I just, I'm not a big fan of running. That's Is it the compression? That's why they invented horses. <laughs> yeah. That's why they invented horses. So I don't have to run. Something uh, like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. I, uh, I love, I love when people say that that's what they invented horses <laughs> or cars or like anything else, but I love that horses was your response. Um, <laughs> I want to talk to you a little bit about search and rescue stuff. Cause that's some yeah. serious, that's some real, you know, that's life and death. That's a very different thing. I heard that you were involved with uh, a major case in Canada. Um, yes. Which one? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, because you've been involved with a few. The most recent one, I believe, was the one I'm thinking of. Their names are escaping me. It was two people, though. Oh, um, oh the the two boys up north. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that? Um, I wasn't involved other than talking to the media about what they could be experiencing. what the terrain was like and you know that kind of stuff I wasn't actively on the search or anything like that I was not involved with it at all I was just helping the the media understand I guess what kind of terrain they were in and stuff like that 
what um can you talk about any of the uh larger cases you've ever worked on that people might know of um or just the, a search and rescue so we can understand the the biggest one i was ever on was um over by barry ontario okay and there was a, a small young boy 12 13 year old him and his parents had a fight about something and he was going to go to the neighbors because he was mad so he jumped on his bike and rode down an old abandoned railroad track and never came home for dinner, never went, never made it to the neighbors. And uh, they found his bike broken on the high, on the old train tracks. And, and then the, he was never seen after that. So they had, the police were there with their helicopters and search dogs and all that stuff. And the, the main media guy for the Barry police was one of the prey that had been on the show. And he called me and what he wanted me to do was come over there and organize all the volunteers. They had like 500 volunteers. They had tents, they had food, they had vehicles, they had everything. They had buses to transport them. They just had nobody to give them a direction. So I went there and the police, I talked to them and I said, I'm planning on doing this. Where is your search area? They explained that. So the volunteers were put to work and searching everywhere outside of the area the police had cordoned off as their hot zone. So, so yeah, I gave everybody, you know, I would take a busload at a time and give them kind of a briefing on what to look for and the mindset to go in there with and, and how to advance through the bush as a herd of 20 and then turn around and go the other way as a herd of 20. And uh, then when they get, they'd get in the bus at the end and come back for lunch. And then, and we had, like I say, 500 people out there searching. And then I was there for three or four days. And then they, they, they called off the search because I think I was called in on the third or fourth day. And uh, they, they did find the young boy a couple of weeks later, some hunters found him and uh, he was expired. Oh. It's so, it's so tragic. Do you think that was a case of the, like you explained, the constant movement? Um, I, I didn't hear all of the details of what happened. You know, um, all I heard was they found them and some hunters found them a couple of weeks later. And, and I never did hear how he expired or, you know, where or any of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's, that's always horrific. I had, um, I had, we have this thing called mental health Monday and we have a, a group, um, on signal, of just people all over the world that talk, um, to one another. And we actually had, a, a similar kind of tragic situation. And they, he actually said it on the, on the thing to, on our messaging today that they found, they found the child. And, you know, I, I never know what to say to people in those situations because that's, that's the horrific and yeah yeah how do you cope with something like that terry um well you know with me i'm you know because i wasn't directly involved in it you know i wasn't one of the family members or any of that kind of stuff i can i can keep myself distanced because i'm there to do a job with the volunteers and and that's what i did there was other searches we were on where we would 
you know, myself personally, I never found any expired persons, but there were other people that, that did. And yeah. we always had a support staff there through the RCMP because we had to be called out by the RCMP. So we were governed by them and basically worked under their protocols and stuff. And we also had their, um, their assistance. If someone was having a hard time dealing with it, they would, you know, be given the number of a person to go talk to on the RCMP staff that their job was to help that person make sense of what was going on and what they were feeling and stuff yeah. like that. They, yeah, they call them victim services. Yeah. 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 We, we deal with, we've spoken with um, N gang unit before and victim services and things like that. And people in those, in those spaces. And um, it's, you know, it's really paramount when somebody, you know, they're volunteering to do something like there's always that chance that that could come up. Um, yes. But you yourself, you've had no issues with any of it. Um, no, because like I said, I've, I've never been directly, you know, the, yeah. the, the person that found that person or any of that kind of stuff. It's, it's just such a, I couldn't, I don't know. I would always want to be volunteer to help, but I don't know that I could, uh, I could do that. That's a different, that's a different thing. You know, it's, um, it's a great thing to be able to volunteer for search and rescue because, you know, you are helping someone you know, whether they're in the bush or in a yeah. town or whatever, you're helping someone to, you know, get found. And mm -hmm. sometimes they don't want to be found. And sometimes they're just lost. And, and it, it's, it gives you a good feeling when you're part of a team that, that does find that person and gets them back. And, you know, they're, they're so appreciative and stuff like that. So the, the, uh, the group I was with the foothill search and rescue, we had, one of our first searches way back about 1995, <clears throat> one of the gentlemen that was with Sun Ice, I believe it was, he was biking in the mountains. And there again, the profiling thing, mountain bikers, you're probably the same way. You never turn around and go back. Mm -hmm. This road must come out somewhere. So you just keep going. And that's what he did. And the weather turned crappy. And of course, he's wearing his spandex and his T-shirt and his little quart of water. And that ran out, you know, a long time ago. And we ended up finding him like five miles farther away from where he should have been because his bike broke and he was going the wrong direction. But there again, it, you know, the trail has to come out somewhere. And we got him back out. And then he showed up about two weeks later with jackets for the whole group. And that's how we got our first search and rescue jackets was donated by someone we helped to find. Okay. So, so yeah, things like that, that's, that makes everything worthwhile because he's helping us and assisting us and giving us the tools to be better prepared for finding somebody else. So I think it's more children I would struggle with. Yeah. Children are, children are tough um, because they're so unpredictable. Mm -hmm. they're they're like oh shiny button oh there's a there's a flower i'll pick that flower for mommy yeah you know and and children do not have fear we put the fear into that child and because they'll wander through a bush and they'll they don't care if it's getting dark or nothing it's like yeah i'm not scared of the dark because mommy has never told her that you know be scared of the dark right 
And there's a story I tell people, I do lots of public speaking and I, and I always tell this story because it, it proves that kids are just so innocent and so fearless if, they're, if that fear is not instilled in them. And the one lady that was uh, part of, well, I was staying up there when we were filming and uh, her, her aunt, I think it was, and her daughter, her sister, years ago, were walking home from school. And the younger girl went into the bush to pick some berries or something. And the older one said, well, hurry up, get out of here. And uh, the older daughter got home. The younger one never showed up. And then she never showed up all night. And they went out looking for her and it's all bush for 300 miles. And they found her the next day, they had the whole community out searching and the kid walked out of the bush, totally fine. And she said, you know, they said, how did you survive? And she said, oh, I ate the berries and, and you know, I picked some of them flowers and she had a bouquet of flowers for mom, oh. not scared at all. And they said, well, you know, how did you stay warm? And where did you sleep? And she says, oh, the big dog kept me warm. And they're looking at her and said, what big dog? Well, I don't know. There was a big dog and I curled up next to it and it kept me warm all night. Oh and like she was like three, four years old. And she didn't know whether she's been asked for years after. And she didn't know if it was a bear or a wolf or what. But the big dog kept her warm. Harry. So, so you know, <laughs> kids are, yeah, kids are amazing. That's, I mean, there's something to be said about she's a lucky little girl, but there's all, I, and then I, I kind of think to myself, well, if it was like a wolf, I mean, they're all pretty vicious, but I, I like to, you know, nature has its way of protecting things when it, <laughs> when it yeah. wants, but it also has its way of eating things when it wants to Terry. Yeah. But it, you know, obviously wild animals, they recognize, you know, the innocence and the, the no there's no fear. That person has no fear of that dog or bear or whatever it was. And they recognize that. That's and what I like to think, but people think I'm crazy when I say things like that, Terry. Yeah. And there, there's lots of stories of the old timers, you know, had the old stud horse out in the corral and it was just mean, you know, the guy could go out and rope it and tie it up and, you know, ride it and stuff, but it was just mean. It would kick and bite and do all kinds of stuff and you could never trim its feet because it would kick you crazy and then they look out the window and here's this little girl pulling on the horse's tail crawling up its hind legs and that big old ugly stud horse is just turning around looking at it and go, goes back to eating grass where if the man or the woman tried to touch its hind legs it would kick it into kick them into Tuesday right you know but this little kid is crawling up its hind legs and and they, they said at the time, the story is probably 16 times told, but they said, we can't even go outside because if that horse sees us, it'll probably run away and the kid will get hurt. So, uh, so they, they actually opened a window and called the girl, called the little kid and said, get down off of there. And the stud horse heard it, but didn't do anything and didn't see anybody. So she crawled down and came back. And then they said, don't do that. Yeah. And this is why. Yeah. So yeah, kids are amazing. They're, they're, they're different, you know, 
because they have no fear, they're impossible to track because they just go from one flower patch to the other. And, and we used to teach a thing in schools and it was, it was kind of invented by a guy that had lost a child and it was called hug a tree. And basically if you're a child and you're lost in the bush, find a tree on a trail and stay there, hug that tree and stay there because people are going to use that trail to find you. So, and yeah, we've heard of lots of reports where kids have got lost and they've done exactly that and they get found the next day. That's smart. That's yeah. So smart. Yeah, it's cool. I, I love that, Terry. I just, oh, that makes my heart happy. I, I'm glad that you talk about those things because, you know, we don't and it, and we need to be having those discussions with children as, as, you know, as much as I feel like I, I wish we could live in a world where that doesn't ever need to be a worry because that would be great, but that's not reality. And there's the yeah. understanding that if you're lost, you know, doing those types of things can save your life and it yeah. makes an impact, um, obviously. Yeah. But um, wow. Yeah. You've kind of had a life. You've had a life and a half and, and, you know, the things that you've been able to instill with the people that you're mentoring the way that because of the way that you lived your life and your values and things like that, it seems like you're going to continue to keep helping our, our society. And, and I'm grateful for that because we need people like you to be teaching kids this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I love what I do. And I was very, very fortunate with the TV show to, to do something that showcased what I've done my whole life. You know, a lot of people, they, they get older and they retire from being an accountant or a mechanic or whatever. And they don't, they don't have something to fall back on to do like teaching about accounting or teaching whatever, what they really love to do. And, and I've been blessed enough to be able to do that. You know, I've been a cowboy my whole life. So now I teach tracking. Um, I get to, I talk, I speak all over Canada and stuff about my experiences and stuff. So I'm, I still get to do what I love doing and I, I'm going to keep doing it till I tip over. Cause it's, uh, it's, it's fun. I love what I do. And it's, you know, it's never work if you like what you're doing. I can't agree with you more. I, yeah, it's pretty fun. It's the truth. Well, I'm going to have to come and visit you and take one of your courses. Cause I'd be really curious to, to brush up on the ability. I know there's something about having the, uh, the life skills that, you yep. know, you know, it just, it makes you feel comfortable in this world. Right. Yeah. Uh, why well, don't you, come out, why don't you come out in June? I got time. We do, we do a, a three day trip. It's coming up the second weekend in June called the man tracker ride. And we take 12, 15 people, put them on a horse and, tramp them around uh, all over the, the Rocky Mountains for three days and sleep in tents. And yeah, we get to see some awesome country. And if, if we see bear tracks and stuff, we get off and I show them and stuff. But it's mostly yeah. three days of doing what I'm doing here, telling stories, and they get to see some amazing country. It's pretty cool. So we're going to email immediately after about the information for this series. Okay, sounds good. Oh, I'm so here for that. That sounds incredible. I, I would love the hell out of that. That would be incredible. Seriously. That yeah. sounds, oh my gosh, Terry. Well, I'm, I'm really grateful for your time. I know my listeners were going to be stoked to hear from you and I'm sure, and I'm hopeful this won't be the last time I get a chance to sit and talk with you. Yeah. Well, there's, there's lots more we can talk about. So. Okay, good. Well, we're going to have you on again, but, um, 
Yeah, that's wow. I'm 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 so happy, Terry. You made my day. I'm not gonna lie. Um, but yeah, is 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 there anything you got going on that uh, people can follow? So if people want to sign up for something like this, where do they do that? Um, if they want to sign up for the the Man Tracker ride, they go to Anchor D at AnchorD.com, okay. and uh, they can sign up there. And uh, the tracking courses and stuff like that is all through mm-hmm. me. That's just Terry at trackingwithterry.com. And uh, yeah, I I normally run the courses in May. Uh, that's when there's the most dirt and the most mud, and there's all the special the the young leaves and stuff. Because we talk about you know tracking and the weather and how it influences the track, and I show them a whole bunch of edible plants and stuff like that. Smart stuff, cool. so people don't eat things and die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I show them the good stuff to eat. I love that, Terry. Okay, well, I, I I'm glad that we got to figure that out because I'll be going there and and, and signing up for one of these because and then I'll go and document the hell out of it for everyone else because I feel like that would make a really interesting episode. Yeah, yeah. All you need is your clothes and your sleeping bag and everything else. Your horse, your saddle, your yeah, food's all cooked for you and there's tents and cots and stuff. Yeah, it's and you get to see some amazing country. You'll be way up high, certain, you know, we'll go over a couple of high passes up there with horseback and it's, it's amazing. I've never had anybody not like it. I mean, how could you not? Yeah, it's pretty cool. You get to be in nature. Yeah, I look forward to it. I love it, Terry. Well, I got to tell you, thank you so much for coming on and making my day. This is uh, something I've been looking forward to a lot. But uh, I'm glad you, uh, glad you got in touch with me. I know me too. Thanks to uh, operational trauma podcast. He's got some, some great people. I was really grateful for that opportunity. So we'll talk soon. You stick with me, Terry, but everyone else it's fucking man tracker. I'll see y'all next week. 